This podcast contains explicit language. Listener discretion is advised. Sending out an NOS. Sending out an NOS. Sending out an NOS. Hello, gang. Welcome back to NOS, the podcast where four autistic comedians talk at you. And sometimes a very special guest. I'm your co-host, Michael McCreary, joined as ever by Pat Tiffin, Adam hey. Schwartz. Yeah, no, that's Pat. A- 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 you won't hear Adam. He doesn't talk much. And Curran, who you won't hear at all because he he, he left us for his much cooler friend who we're never going to see. It's it's fine. Christian's here also. He's the producer of the show. He's a good guy. Anyways, we um uh, we, we, we had a real treat tonight. We got to sit down with the art director of the Winnipeg Comedy Festival, uh, Dean Jenkins. Director. Sorry, sorry. The, of the Winnipeg Comedy Festival. Did I say the, the art director? Oh, oh I, okay. I, I thought I said the autistic director. Of the, no, no, no. To the extent that we know not. You mean the set dresser? Yeah. Dean Jenkinson. Hi, everyone. So today we're talking to the amazing, wonderful Dean Jenkinson. So you may know him for, as a, the artistic director of the Winnipeg Comedy Festival. Uh, a headliner at Rumors Comedy Club, or you may know him for his just for last comedy work, where he's worked, written for many of your favorite stars. Hi, Dean. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it very much. So, as always, the other hosts are Mike, Pat, and Curran. Oh, we've so, already introduced ourselves. Also, this is going yeah, to come this after the it's, it's like, yeah, we're known. Adam, if you don't have a question for Dean, it's fine. You, you can just Of course, I've got a million questions for Dean. Uh, <laughs> you sound very sincere. Uh, so, so, Dean, how like long have you known Adam for? How long have I known Adam? How I don't know, Adam. How long have we known each other? I think we've known about each other for several years but uh yeah we we, we kind of uh travel in the same circles here in winnipeg uh, winnipeg's comedy scene mm-hmm. um but uh, as many locals have pointed out to me since i became a father i don't show up at a lot of the uh rooms around town as often as i used to or ought to mm-hmm. you've been showing up at comedy mics for since you were 18 uh and you were a local boy i was listening to your an interview where you were talking about how you grew up in uh, St. Hotel or which area? Uh, St. Norbert. Yeah, I grew up in the South End and um, I've, I've worked in other cities in the country for, you know, chunks of time, but I've never relocated to anywhere else in the country. So born in, born in Edmonton, but raised in Winnipeg since I was four. And uh, I, I, you know, I think... I think I thought when I was a young man, I would eventually move to a bigger center, but I've learned as a, an older man, you actually have to go ahead and do that. <laughs> you can't just assume it'll happen at some point. Mm-hmm. Do you go to St. Norbert Mar- Farmer's Market a lot growing up? Um, you know what? When I was a young man, they didn't quite have the St. Norbert, Far- Norbert Farmer's Market, but my parents lived in that house that I grew up in until about, gosh, eight years ago. So yeah, I've, I've spent some time at uh, St. Norbert's Farmer Market, but not as a young man. I'm, I was born in 1970, if anybody wants to put some context on when I was young. Nice. Uh, and we're also going to be talking about uh, your being a father, because this is a special Father's Day episode. Uh, Adam? No, it's not. Adam? Uh, th- this, is, this is the July episode? Oh. 
Okay, then. Oh, cool. We can talk about how I'm one of the fathers of Canada. This is the special Canada Day episode. Yeah, this is the yeah, Canada Day yeah. episode. See, uh, <laughs> Dean, Dean, when Dean says uh, the, they were born in the 70s, they actually meant the 1870s at the point of confederation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to, uh, so do you, what was it like meeting Sarah Silverman? I mean, I'm a huge fan. She is, uh, you know, sometimes they say don't meet your heroes because you'll be disappointed. Sarah was the opposite of that. Sarah was everything I hoped she would be. Because um, what you're referring to is uh, I've been part of a, a little writing team that, um, you know, shifts and changes and adds and loses members here and there from year to year. But I've, I've written for Just for Laughs hosts uh, for a few years now. And, um, you know, every once in a while, you'll meet one who isn't quite invested in it or whose ideas you don't agree with or wish you could persuade them to drop. And Sarah Silverman was everything you would hope she would be. She is so, 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 so f smart about comedy. So funny. And uh, we were lucky enough to pitch some material at her. Uh, I was lucky enough to pitch a song idea at her. And at every step of the process, she would engage. And every step of the process, she would give us notes that you would read or hear and say, yes, 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 yes. That makes it so much better. Because sometimes you get notes and your gut says, I think that's a step yeah. backwards. I think it's getting less funny now. But everything Sarah would suggest, you'd be like, oh, yes, absolutely. She's totally unlocked it now. And uh, I could not have been more happy with uh, working with somebody that I've looked up to and idolized for so, so, so many years. But isn't she also much younger than you? So, I mean, I always feel weird looking up to someone uh, who's younger. Yeah, I mean, like you can you can point out how unsuccessful I am all you like, Adam. I don't mind that. I, I don't mind being a, a never bloomer. But uh, <laughs> no, I guess she's probably younger than I am. But I remember working at CBC Radio when her album called uh, Jesus is Magic was album. coming out and back then it was coming out on dvd it wasn't coming out on um you know it wasn't going to stream it wasn't going to drop on uh, platforms that didn't exist yet it was going to come out as a dvd that you would put into your dvd machine back in the uh you know late 90s early 2000s i'd have to look up when it came out it, it was and like so, mid 2000s yeah that that rings that rings a bell like maybe like yeah 2005 2000 yeah we know what the middle of a decade is. I don't need to point out a number. And uh, so I saw on YouTube, here's some clips from this upcoming DVD. And we all gathered around a computer at CBC Radio and we watched some clips and we laughed and laughed and laughed. And I said, all right, I'm going on the internet with my credit card. I'm going to buy that DVD. And when it arrives, we're all going over to my house and we're going to watch Sarah Silverman's uh, DVD. And that's exactly what we did. We gathered after work and we sat down and we watched it. And we laughed and laughed and laughed. And then to think that, you know, maybe I'm trying to put a timeline on it, maybe like nine, 10 years later, I was lucky enough to be creating material and jokes that she delivered on the stage in Montreal was just, uh, just, uh, like a dream come true, you know, just a dream come true. And there's a lovely selfie buried, you know, years ago in my Facebook <laughs> photos of her, uh, kind enough to take a photo with me in the hallways. It just for laughs. And I was lucky enough to overhear her 
tell, like Joan Rivers, I guess at the time was there. She was working for e-television and she had a camera and a microphone and she was interviewing some of the stars and celebrities in Montreal. And she stuck the camera in Joan's face or in, in Sarah's face, I should say. Joan stuck the camera in Sarah Silverman's face and the microphone under her chin and asked her about her Montreal experience. And what Sarah said in part was, oh, yeah, yeah, they paired me up with some Canadian writers and I was going to, I was like, oh, no, this is going to be like, ugh. But they're really good, she said. And I was so happy to overhear her say that because uh, it confirmed for me that we hadn't let her down. Do you still have a list of other people that you want to write for? Do you have a list written out somewhere? You know what? I mean, there's lots of people that I would be thrilled to do it for, but I don't have kind of a bucket list that I've, you know, formulated in my head or on paper or anything like that. You know, part of our team is Pat Dusso, who lives out in uh, Toronto, who's originally from Montreal. And I know Pat's told me some of the names that he's put on his list, which makes me think I, sh I should have one. You know, so Pat said that he would love to write something for uh, like a, a Dan Aykroyd hosting uh, evening, if that ever were to happen. And he's... Uh, He's wanted, uh, you know, we've we tried to book Dan to host a Winnipeg Comedy Fest gala many a year, and uh, we haven't made it, uh, haven't been able to make that deal or make that happen. And Very you elusive. also opened up uh, Row for the Muppets. Yeah, that was the very, was that the first or second year I was out there? And that's... Um, I mean, what can you say about the Muppets? I mean, I was six or seven when they were on TV, and I watched it on a black and white TV in my parents' uh, kitchen while we ate dinner. And um, it was so amazing watching them do it live on stage because I didn't know, and I don't think anybody really knew, what you would be seeing in a live theater setting, right? And the answer is, if you're curious is you see the puppeteers standing on the stage with the Muppets held over their heads. So the humans are performing with their hands stretched over their heads for the entire time, and the camera catches them above their heads, which has to be, uh, you know, you think about a, a backcatcher's knees. I can't imagine what a Muppeteer's uh, shoulders are like after a 30-year career. Like, I can't hold my hands over my head for longer than a <laughs> few minutes without feeling like I'm going to die. They'd be like a medieval archer, basically. Like Exactly. I, I now, I wanted to ask you, D, because you've been a veteran writer for uh, JFL, but also some of the most iconic of, uh, of, of, of like the CBC's canon of like, uh, like back canon of like comedy, sketch comedy shows. And I wanted to ask you, what is the core difference between writing in someone else's voice, like writing for a specific person versus writing for sketch? Um, yeah, that's, you know, I don't think there's a really simple answer to that other than you've got to... You know, I remember when I was writing for Sarah, I, I just sat down and listened to a lot of her stuff to try to get into the rhythm of her speech patterns and sort of the way she likes to construct a joke. Because as you know, and as anybody who's done comedy knows or watched comedy knows, there's a million different ways to be funny. And it's about finding your way, right? And um, so Sarah... Um, you know, you can write jokes that are funny, but if they don't fit somebody's personality or the way they like to present or the, the character that they have on stage, it doesn't quite work. Um, 
And then when it comes to sketch, I mean, um, you know, I, I've never considered myself a very good sketch writer. I know people who I think are very good sketch writers and I don't have the abilities that they have. I think my um, strengths, uh, the seasons that I've written on shows like, you know, 22 minutes were those kind of news jokes, right? Where this happened and here's a punchline about it rather than, um, you know, here's a funny scene, um, which is something that I still find eludes me more often than not. But so, oh, uh, when you copied Sarah Silverman's voice patterns, that must have been a weird experience for your wife. <laughs> <laughs> now, actually, on the topic of like, uh, just because we were talking about Jesus's magic a second ago, and she has like mm-hmm. all these great sort of like funny songs, and uh, you also did a very funny song that I heard recently on uh, CBC's Laugh Out Loud, and I just wanted to ask you, what is the platonic ideal for good musical comedy? Where you're like, I, I talked to Rick and Laura Hall about what this once, and they said sometimes the difficult thing about having a nice voice when you do musical comedy is that it almost distracts from the fact that you're telling jokes and people aren't just going, oh, what a pretty voice, and you have a great voice, but you could still make out the jokes in your virus song. So I wanted to ask, how do you strike that balance there um i mean i the way i describe when people like if i'm in an airport or something or i get in a cab and i'm i've got the guitar because i'm using it that night wherever i happen to be performing and somebody says oh do you play music and i say well i'm a comedian and i play music well enough for comedy right i would never uh like if you asked me to perform publicly and sing songs that are serious or straight or heartfelt I would run screaming, you know, but it's, it's okay. Here's a vehicle for some jokes and something that I love about musical comedy is you have to, you know, you have to uh, accommodate the meter of the song and accommodate the structure of the song and your brain as a listener knows whether it knows it or not, it understands subconsciously where the end of the line is going to come, where the end of the verse is going to come. And so that's an opportunity to have those three things, the music and the meter of the words and the conclusion of the comedy idea all converge on that one instance and that one moment in time. And so that's why I love musical comedy because when you make those three things come together in one instance and that light bulb goes off in your head and that little flash as a listener goes off in your head, that's the magic moment, right? So it's about constructing those little magic intersections of the conclusion of a rhythm and the conclusion of a melody and the conclusion of a comedy idea that maybe ends in a misdirection or or whatever it is, right? And it's creating those moments of intersection where that explosion happens in your brain of laughter. And I find that magic to be something that, um, yeah, you can't even, you know, I, I feel like a, I feel silly describing it in those kind of analytical terms. But I, when I when I look at what's happening, that's what's happening. And that's why it works. And that's why it's magical. Well, it's not silly at all because, I mean, I, I think that it's easier almost to dissect a song than it is to dissect a joke because a joke is oftentimes so intuitive from, and not that music isn't, but like you're just seeing what a room responds to. And while you have like a premise and you're like, you're going like, okay, uh, what's like, what's the point of view here? What's the attitude? How can I heighten this to into absurdity? But with a song, you can it like, whereas a joke, you're like, how do I work out the rhythms of this? There's so many things I could do. With a song, you could just be like first chorus, first chorus, first chorus, or any of those combinations does it come more naturally to you to like write a comedy song um 
I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Um, you know, something I'm aware of is, you know, there, there are different comedy, um, what's the word I'm looking for, you know, seasons or styles that kind of come in and out of fashion. And as somebody who was born in the year 1970, I feel like, um, you know, I am not at the uh, cutting edge of stand-up comedy innovation, right? I, I stood on the shoulders of people who came before me, and now there are kids who are coming and plotting and plowing and 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 cutting new paths and and exploring new frontiers that I am not fresh enough and creative enough to find, and I I admire the hell out of it. Um, Did you write you know, any songs on the organ? Because I know that you used to play organ for the Winnipeg Jets. Yeah, I am. I am musically talented enough to tell jokes and to lead hockey crowds. That's the extent of my like jock music. jams or like. No, I was uh, I was the person at the Winnipeg Jets games for a few years, or one of one of the people, because I wasn't ever the sole person there. But myself and maybe one or two other people in a given jet season would be the person. I would be the person that night up at the organ going dun 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 charge charge dun 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 that would be my job for three hours. Curry, you were gonna say yeah it occurred to me earlier when you were talking about like you know uh the uh like analyzing musical comedy that I don't mean this in a bad way but I it occurred to me that like with a good musical comedy song it's a kind of a way of faking good timing like faking good time that's a really good point like that's a really good point because yeah the comedy the structure of the song is going to dictate your timing so whether you're naturally inclined as a performer to have good timing, the song is going to tell you, well, this is where the joke has to happen. It has to happen at the, at the end of the verse or the beginning of the chorus where the reveal is. And then again, there should be another joke at the end of the chorus, basically the end of every line in a perfect world. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah. So if you're somebody who struggles with timing, why don't you write a song and it'll teach you how to uh, put the joke at the end of your sentence rather than put the joke in the middle of your sentence and then you trail off a little bit and kill your own laugh. Exactly. Yeah. So so speaking of trailing off, Adam, what happened in the background of your, I I just heard like 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 a waiter spill something. Yeah, you know, those waiters in your house. <laughs> it just, you. I know, it wasn't an actual, I mean, it sounded like a restaurant crash. It wasn't like a crash. It sounded like it fell off a saucer. Hilda's gone Greek wedding now. Yeah. Opa. I don't know if you have a bed and breakfast in mm-hmm. sunny Winnipeg, Manitoba. Mm-hmm. So, so, Dean, uh, getting back to the whole uh, watching young people do their stuff, uh, how, how much has working on, like, 22 minutes sort of inspired you in new comedic directions? Um, it's Yeah, it's an interesting question because, I mean, 22 minutes has been on the air now for coming up to, you know, this was either season 28, I think. They're coming up to three decades on the air. And when I did my first season of 22 minutes, I think it was season 15. And at the time, people said, like people at the show 
who had been at the show for a long time, said, hey, welcome to the show, but it's probably our last season. You know, we've been around for a long time, and it's kind of maybe run its course, CBC might feel. So, you know, it's nice that you're here. Maybe don't get too comfortable. And then year two, we got renewed. Like my year two, season 16, it got renewed. And people said, but this is probably our last season. And then, you know, a few more seasons went by, and the ratings, you know, would climb that season and then they'd say well we're i think we're pretty safe anyway here we are 14 more years later and it's still on the air and i think one of the things they've done a pretty good job of is continuing to put new young people in the room you know people like sophie buttle and mace galoni and they were talk to you because you kept it going yeah 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 (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I've been I've been kind of a constant. I went from like the young new guy in the room to the oldest guy in the room in what seemed like overnight, you know, and I uh, I remember being in the room uh, at 22 minutes a couple of years ago and um, somebody said something and I said, well, that's like uh, that's like Peter Puck. <laughs> everybody looked at me like what is peter puck and i said you know from hockey night in canada back in this uh, back in the 70s you would at the end of the first or second period they would have a little animated cartoon with a little cartoon puck named peter and he was peter puck and he would teach you all those little arcane rules about hockey that you might not be able to glean if you haven't been a dedicated fan for a long time, like what, what is an offside and how does, uh, how does this work and how does overtime work and how, what are all those little rules of NHL hockey that you might not know? And uh, every single person in the room said, nope, never heard of it. You're an old, old man. <laughs> Do you ever want to voice Peter Puck? I'm sorry? Do you ever want to play the role of Peter Puck? I've never, I've never thought about that, but I would voice Peter Puck in a second. <laughs> you know, I, I like Peter Puck to me just feels like a relevant fixture of Canadiana, just because it was like even when I was a kid, I, I guess a Dean must have been in a lot of writers' rooms because I remember a, sh- a cartoon called Being Ian on YTV, where there was like a thinly veiled knockoff of Peter Puck in the Trevor Linden episode, okay. and to me, the entire time I was just thinking to myself like. Like it, it, I, maybe this is the end of it. You know what I mean? Where it's sort of like there is just a point at which, like, uh, it's not even about like losing a pop cultural frame of reference of things that came from the 20th century. It seems like younger Canadians just don't really like. I, I remember talking to people that were my age that didn't know like what a, what heritage moments were. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Me and my girlfriend like were kind of going like, like, like she had family in Halifax, so she was laughing about the fact that she goes, "That's like the only thing we have going for us is like the Halifax explosion and the heritage moment dramatizing." <laughs> and it smells like burnt toast. <laughs> and it becomes, you know, it becomes a challenge how, you know, part of comedy, and maybe not the best part of comedy, but certainly uh, a well-traveled part of comedy is sharing those common references. So back when I was a kid and there were three channels, if you didn't have a cable package, there was, you know, I had CBC and I had the CTV um local affiliate which was called um cky and maybe it still is i don't even know and then there was cknd that was the third channel and then uh, what eventually became a channel was the fourth channel and uh you know so you had your mr dress-ups and your uh um, friendly giants and you know everybody had the same references because the culture was very uh homogenous and now you've got 
the internet and a million streaming services that you can't keep up with. And everybody has their own references. So if you go on stage saying, you know, if you go on stage and you want to make a joke about uh, pop culture, chances are a big part of your crowd isn't plugged into that thing that you're talking about, right? Game of Thrones is huge, but there's an, possibly an equally huge portion of the audience who hasn't ever seen an episode of Game of Thrones. Well, talking so, about being able to produce content during the pandemic, uh, you ran the Winnipeg Comedy Festival in basically the year that wasn't. Uh, would you mind talking about just what what that was like? I mean, what that was like is we, you know, so going back... What are we in now? This is May. I can't even tell you which month it is most of the time. I have to think. Uh, so we're in May right now. So, you know, 15, 16 months ago, we were planning our April, end of April, beginning of May festival for 2020. And we had it all on paper and we had people contracted and, and, and shows lined up. And then the pandemic came to Canada and the lockdown hit. And so we, you know, pushed the pause button and we waited and then we eventually um, had some outdoor shows uh, throughout the summer at the gas station art center in Winnipeg. And then we did um, we did what we called a two phase uh, festival because in August we were able to reopen some theatrical venues at a reduced capacity. So we did some live shows in August and then we were able to do some television taping uh, for 2020 because we tape five television galas every year and we were able to tape them at the end of October with a very um, small masked distanced crowd and lots and lots and lots of uh you know protocols in place for the safety of the crew and the cast and everything else um that we taped in october and we got in we realized in hindsight like we we had had this booked out in the summer we we're going to go in this week in august uh, or in october I'm, I'm sorry and the province the provincial rules allowed us to and we you know dotted all the i's and crossed all the t's and then the second wave hit basically immediately after and we were like phew like we just got in under the wire and since then you know we we wanted to do a festival in the spring and that's clearly not going to happen and right now we're targeting the um you know again in october we're going to try to do uh, the same thing in october um and whether the virus allows us to do that or not is to be seen uh, did, uh, you did a show about larry luff last festival yeah so one of the shows we did right at the end of October was a, um, you know, at the time and, you know, even now we weren't allowed to fly people in from the east. So uh, one of the things that had happened that you may or may not be familiar with in the um, the first wave of the pandemic is uh, Pat Thornton, who's a wonderful comedian in Toronto. He and his wife had a baby and they said, you know, what might be fun because people are all stuck at home and they don't have a lot to do and we don't have a lot to do. Uh, so uh, Pat and his wife, Maggie said, our, our little baby here every day, we're going to dress up as a famous celebrity and we're going to take some photos or video and we're going to post it on Pat's Instagram and Facebook and we're going to hashtag it Larry looks and we'll, you know, put it up on Twitter. And it kind of, uh, kind of went a little viral in Canada and maybe uh, beyond Canada and you know uh some local and national television stations did some profiles of them and uh, you know i followed them every day and loved all their stuff and commented on my favorites and everything else and so when october came around and they had done like 100 days of 
different costumes for their babies that they had made out of materials they had lying around their house because Maggie happens to be a, uh, a teacher, a kindergarten or elementary school teacher, and she's wonderful with crafts and scissors and everything else. So they would make these costumes, and I said, I would love if I could fly Pat here and fly Maggie here and fly baby Larry here for them to tell us the story of Larry looks and their experience doing that and the response that they got and how it made them feel and how it made others feel. Um, that's what I would do. And, but, uh, when we couldn't fly them in, I approached Pat and Maggie and I said, would you be willing to put on a zoom show for us, uh, that would be streamable online, but also watchable by a live theater audience at the gas station art center. And that's exactly what we did. And I loved it. I loved it. I loved it so much. And I know that Pat and Maggie loved the chance to uh, tell their story to anybody interested. And it may still be findable on YouTube. I, I could, I could check and see if it's still streamable on YouTube. We could absolutely post that uh, uh, below the video. Uh, do, do you see this as a format, as a foreseeable format going forward? Like, like even as like a multimedia thing? You know, that's a good question. Like, I think, you know, history has shown that limitations always are opportunities, right? And doing Zoom comedy is certainly something that never would have happened if it weren't for the necessity of doing it. Um, I was very resistant to performing on Zoom when it first started. And once I finally reluctantly dipped my toe into the water, I found I really kind of liked it. And I really think it is a different presentation. And I feel like, and I could be wrong, this is my opinion, I feel like the people who do it the best don't treat it like they're standing on a stage in front of a live audience, right? They don't stand holding a microphone and sort of moving their eye line back and forth like they're talking to different sides of the room and making everybody feel included because nobody is over here and nobody is over there. Everybody is right here. So I feel like stare down the barrel and talk to people like you're talking to them on a FaceTime chat. Right. And that's how you're going to engage with them is making eye contact with them and speaking directly to them. And, um, you know, I don't know if this is uh, giving away the store. I don't think it is. The nice part about Zoom comedy is your set list doesn't have to be on a stool next to you that you kind of cheat and look at. The set list or even an, uh, even a word for word script can be on your screen scrolling up right by your camera so that you can be knowing that you're not missing anything. This is your teleprompter. Yeah. And so you have a lot of opportunities to do things on Zoom that you can't do live. You have opportunities to share your screen and put up slides or little videos and to talk over them or with them. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I think it's it's definitely something that could continue forward and maybe it will. And maybe, you know, you might go back to comedy in 2022 and 2023 and go to a club and there's a live host, say, and then someone performing from their living room on a screen for the live audience and then a headliner who's on stage. Who knows, right? You know, last October when we did shows at the... Um, gas station art center we would have we could fly people from the west because those were the rules but we couldn't fly people from the east for live shows so we would have winnipeg and western comics live on stage and the host would throw to somebody from the east doing a set on the big screen either from their home in in, in toronto or montreal or believe it or not from their hotel room three blocks away at the uh, fairmont hotel because 
the rules were they could be there for a television taping, but they couldn't be there for a live theatrical performance, if that makes any sense, right? So you would have, you know, Marta Chavez from her hotel room on Zoom because we weren't allowed to put her in a, you know, a cab or an Uber or a shuttle and bring her to the gas station arts center and uh, inflict her Toronto germs on uh, Winnipeg people, right? Uh, so uh, you, you've worked with the Winnipeg uh, Comedy Festival for years, even before you were uh, artistic director. Are there any really good moments over the years that, that you'd like to tell us about? Any really good moments? Yeah. No. No, it's all been horrible. It's really been a bad... It's all been Nicole Arbor versus... <laughs> Nicole Arbor versus her introduction? Um, <laughs> no, there's so many wonderful moments. There's so many wonderful moments. And I can't even... I, I didn't sit down in advance of this interview to maybe uh, conjure some to memory, some recent ones that I, I was so happy about. I've been a pro wrestling fan since I was 12 years old when the AWA was in Winnipeg and it was Nick Bockwinkle as world champion and the High Flyers and Jesse the Body Ventura and Mad Dog Vachon and that whole gang. And, uh, you know, that love of pro wrestling continued through my young adulthood and into my middle age uh, in different forms. But, um, uh, you know, in I think 2018, we were doing a show, one of our TV gala themes was sports. It's something that we hadn't covered on, uh, on our galas. And we noticed, you know, a lot of comics talk about either being fans or being recreational players or a past where they were competitive in, in a certain whatever, right? Or and, if you're up, you, you're talking yeah. about how you want to get the right amount of different genetics in to make the perfect hockey player. Yeah, 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 exactly. The, yeah, this idea of him not, uh, he does a, a hilarious bit about uh, if he had a son that wasn't good at hockey, how he would, you know, have to basically <laughs> distance himself <laughs> publicly from this uh, genetic embarrassment. Um but uh, we were looking for a host that seemed to be a natural fit for uh, a sports-themed comedy show who was, one, Canadian, because that's number one, and two, has a certain amount of fame. Uh, three, we can, uh, whose price we can meet because we don't have $100,000 to pay a Winnipeg Comedy Fest gala host. And, uh, and four, is, has a sports connection. And one of the ideas we came up with is what about Winnipeg's own WWE superstar, former world champion, Chris Jericho. And we approached Chris's people and we came to an agreement and Chris came to Winnipeg to host our show. And he's somebody who has spent years on a microphone in a pro wrestling setting and has done things kind of like this in the past and was terrific. He was just terrific, you know, and, you know, the best comics in Canada take to it like a duck to water from their first open mic. The rest of us learn how to do it through trial and error and a lot of bombing. And Chris, God bless him, just has such terrific instincts and knows his own strengths and knows his own character and knows what's funny coming out of his own mouth. So we wrote him a monologue and he went through it and said, I don't, wouldn't say this, I wouldn't say this, I wouldn't talk about that, I'm not interested in this, I'm not interested in that. This is funny, this is funny, this is funny, this is funny, more of that. And so we, you know, we would make revision after revision after revision. And then we got him in town and you sit down with him the day of and we go back through it one more time and we make some fine tuning and he goes and he does a rehearsal, knocks it out of the park, goes and does it in, at the Pantages Theater in front of a live crowd, 
knocks it out of the park. And I was just so happy that uh, somebody that I had watched in a different venue, and my two worlds collide, my my silly love for pro wrestling and my love for stand-up comedy got to meet in this moment. And uh, we got to collaborate with Chris and I got to tell him about being uh, in the audience for so many of his live shows here and there and how I'd flown to Seattle to watch WrestleMania 19 and saw him and Shawn Michaels have the match of the night there. And so, you know, you have that connection where he understands that you understand what he does and you're not somebody who says, yeah, so what is it? Is that fake? Is that fake, that pro wrestling? You're not somebody who's going to treat him like that. You're somebody who has an appreciation for what he brings to the table as a performer, you know? So that was a wonderful, wonderful experience to have uh, somebody like Chris Jericho who comes from a world that's not comedy, but who can bring what he does to stand-up comedy in a way that uh, it's a it's a wonderful marriage you know would you would you mind elaborating on some of the transferable skills that would come from being a pro wrestler like well, that, that, that would for a second career in wrestling is that the plan yeah i'm a heel i uh mm. no no we're I, all I, heels <laughs> well, well i've heard that they're a broken brawler but but but, but well, wrestling and stand-up comedy you need a good punchline Sorry. <laughs> we can edit so, that out. My goddamn Keep question. <laughs> sorry, uh, so, I mean, so, uh, sorry, Dean. Yeah, I mean, I mean, some of the transferable skills. I mean, I think you could, uh, if I asked you the same question, I'm sure you could come up with a lot of the same answers I'm going to give you, which is, you know, you are there learning to play the audience. And, and, and I don't mean that. I, what I, what I mean by that is, you know, a, a musician is there to play the song, right? So as a performer in pro wrestling and in comedy, the audience is teaching you what to do by their response. Right. And it's that dance and that back and forth. Right. So when I was a young pup in comedy, one of the people who had headlined at the comedy club and who went on to host a national CBC radio show and was one of the best headliners in the country was Lorne Elliott. And I don't know if uh, your listeners will remember Lorne Elliott from Madly Off in All Directions, but Lorne Elliott was fond of saying the audience teaches you how to tell a joke, right? Because when you do it this way, it works. And when you don't do it, when you do it this way, it doesn't work. And so the audience is teaching you how the funny works. And in pro wrestling, uh, you know, something that uh, pro wrestlers have said they've heard as they're starting is the thing that you do that gets the biggest reaction, the move that you do that gets the biggest reaction, that's your closer. That's your big finishing move. And as you find things that work better than that, you move that move up in your repertoire until what used to be your best thing is now your worst thing, right? And so it's, it's that constant um, education that you're giving yourself based on the reaction that what you're doing gets, right? If that makes any sense. So it's all about that learning how to play an audience, right? And the best pro wrestlers will let the audience dictate what's coming next based on their response to what's happening now, right? So you'll stretch out a match to build the suspense for that hot tag to your tag team partner when you're getting the shit kicked out of you, right? You're the baby face who's getting beat up by the bad guys and the crowd just desperately wants you to make it through and not get pinned and not get beaten and make that tag to your fresh partner. And then they go ape shit when you finally do it. And the best guys will know instinctively when that moment is to make that explosion and that pop and that reaction as big as it can be. And that only comes from your gut and your experience 
and what you've learned doing it night after night after night after night in front of a live crowd to get that those moments because what you're doing is you're creating those moments where hundreds of people or thousands of people experience the same thing at exactly the same time right and that's the magic of live performing is making these communal emotional moments out of thin air basically right and that's the magic of of live performance that's hard to capture on zoom like as much as i love being on zoom and hearing those four microphones that zoom will let you hear out of the 40 or 400 people or whatever it is you know 12 people 30 people 50 people I'm told that uh, the Zoom program will only let you hear the response of four at any given time. And that is still, ah, that's the oxygen you need to know that you're doing all right, you know? I find with wrestling as well as comedy, like there's there's this fair amount of like psychology. So like something I've learned in like the last couple of years, like as far as my comedy is concerned, I find that uh, that there are, like I have a lot of like, those good moments, but I don't like one of the things I really want to bring along that I do a lot of like set stuff, but what I want to do is like occasionally step in shit, which is like something all autistic people do is like, we'll, st- we'll occasionally step in this, we'll st- occasionally step in this shit and we'll be like, just remind people that we're actually normal sometimes. Right, right, right. I think one of the things that is also very transferable is this idea of trying to um, always step into the next gear, right? So you start out in, in gear one and a good headline comic has different gears that they go through throughout the 45 minutes or an hour, right? I mean, uh, I have certainly had shows where I'm supposed to do 45 minutes and I feel like I'm stuck in first gear for the whole show. I can get a laugh. And then maybe 30 seconds later, I'll get another laugh. And then 20 seconds later, I'll get another laugh. And this goes on and on and on and on for 45 minutes. But there's never this acceleration. And there's never this momentum building. And there isn't any, and now we're shifting to second gear. And then we're shifting into third gear. And then we're shifting into fourth gear. And before you know it, there's so much momentum. And the whole you know, place is, is coming unglued. A good wrestling match will do that. And a good comedy set will do that. And uh, and a mediocre one will be stuck in first or second gear. Plus, you need to learn how to hit someone with a and stool. And then there's crap. The, and the... you have to learn how to hit someone with a stool. And and you have both. to learn how to hit somebody with a stool. That's that's both things too. And then there's crowds that'll no no sell every joke you, you say. Exactly. And then there's yep. And then there's crowds that will just yeah no sell every move. <laughs> what's what's the tough what's the toughest comedy club you've ever played? Um, that's a good question. I don't have, like, I, I, I don't think of it in terms of this room is tough and that room's not tough. It's just, you know, any room can be tough and any room can be amazing depending on the people who are in it and the energy in that room is my impression. And, uh, you know, I'll also state, uh, I don't have, uh, you know, there's so many comics who have infinitely more experience as a performer than I do. You know, I've, I've done, uh, a lot of performing, but I haven't done as much performing as somebody who has dedicated their entire career to the art of performing, right? So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a festival booker and producer, and I also do some writing. So I, I have a lot of different, um, you know, irons in the fire. And, uh, you know, avoid in, uh, inescapably, I'm not the performer 
that I would probably be or might be if I was performing 300 nights a year instead of 100 or 80 or 50 or whatever it is, or in the case of a COVID year, 10, you know, um, you know, those are, those are skills that you get, that you sharpen by holding your knife to the, to the grindstone at exactly the right angle, you know, and you can, you can be somebody who performs 300 nights of the year. And instead of getting sharper, you get duller because you're holding your knife to the grindstone at exactly the wrong angle. And it just wears you down and it just makes you just uh, dead, dead inside, you know, you become a comic who just, you, the grind is too much and you go out and you phone in the same show year after year after year until your, your light goes out, you yes. know? As a festival booker, uh, what do you think is the key to a good showcase set? Um, I would say the key to a good showcase set, and there isn't one, but I can tell you some of the things that make a good showcase set. One is that you don't have a lot of verbal ticks or crutches. And I guess what I'm saying by that is your delivery is smooth. There isn't a lot of, you know, hey folks, so you know, and and I did this, you know, and then uh, and then like I did this, you know, and I I think there was there was a showcase set I saw where I started to realize I had heard the same, do you know what I mean? Do you know what I mean? Do you know what I mean? Some kind of phrase like that so often that I, I literally started to count. So maybe I, I, I've done that with like first time at open mics when people just swear, like, just like, as far as like, I got up to like 32 F words at one point. With yeah. This one comic set. So if you're somebody who isn't aware that every phrase is ending or every sentence you do is ending with the same phrase, like, you know, or uh, right right so i was at the store right and this guy comes up to me right and he says to me this right and i was like what and that's your joke and then this story right and then that right and if that's a gimmick and you can make it work that's one thing but if it's something you do subconsciously that you're not aware of then it's 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 holding you back right i've i've always wondered if i i were to say because sometimes i'll spot those verbal ticks in somebody at a showcase set and I don't know them personally and I don't want to approach them and give them feedback that they might feel hurt by or criticized by or feel like I'm shitting on them or anything like that. Right. Uh, but I would love to, I've, I've often wondered to say, you know, some people I, I'm aware of what their tics are and I don't want to break your heart, you know, that would improve your, uh, your stage presence and your delivery by 150%. Uh, and thanks for asking, right? Uh, so that's one. It's a clean delivery is just, you know, that's some good fundamentals. Um, having a unique something about you, a presentation or a style or a look or, a you know, a hook or a gimmick. And I don't mean gimmick in a, uh, in a derisive sense, but stand out, I guess, is what I'm trying to say, right? I am, as a performer one of hundreds of unremarkable white stand-ups. So as a performer, if I were watching myself, I'd say, he was all right. He kind of understands how a joke works. He's funny, he got laughs, but what am I grabbing onto? What is his thing that makes him so unique and so watchable that I want to show him to the whole world, right? 
I don't have that. I would love it if I did. I haven't found my thing, I don't think. And, you know, I haven't performed at, uh, at a Just for Laughs gala. I haven't performed at a Halifax Comedy Gala. So as a performer, I'm aware that uh, I don't necessarily bring to the table what I as a producer would want to find in a performer. Does that make any sense? Yep. So be memorable, have a hook, right? Be somebody who you remember at the end of the night to not say, who was that guy? Did he, what was the thing he said about, uh, I don't remember. I don't remember his name. I don't remember his face. Was that him? I don't remember that joke, right? You want to be memorable. And the way you're memorable is you're unique and your delivery is clean. And the jokes are like the jokes per minute are high, right? Because there's a lot of people who bring a lot to the table, but the jokes per minute are just too low. Just when you're looking at it, you're like, you just need to tighten everything up and get the jokes as close together as you can, right? Because that's ultimately the goal of what we're doing is to elicit a specific emotional response from a group of strangers, namely laughter, as many times in the time you're on stage as you can period, right? That's really all the function of the work is, is as many laughs per minute as you can get by any means you can get them. Oh, uh, an interesting thing to say. He said that uh, people won't remember exactly what you said, but they'll remember how you made them feel. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, if somebody walks off stage and you're like, Jesus, holy smokes, like I'm just, I can't, my side hurts, my cheeks hurt. I don't remember one joke that I could tell my friends, but you'll remember Rob Pugh made me like puke my guts out laughing. I mean, that's what you want, obviously. That's what we all want, right? Is to be that person who is the best person on the show, who made everybody laugh the hardest, who's the most, made them remember how you felt, right? So Winnipeg has, so Winnipeg has been known for uh, theme shows. What theme have you always wanted to do, but you've never gotten to do it? That's a very good question. I know there's some theme ideas that I've pitched and pitched and pitched that haven't gone anywhere. And it's probably because it's not that good of an idea. So I could give you an answer, but it's not because this is the one thing that I love so much, uh, but so, nobody can see my, you know, the genius behind it. Um, but I'm trying to think. Um, I think an idea that I've always pitched in various forms that we've never quite gotten off the ground or fine-tuned is a theme uh is a show themed around the idea of miscommunication right I've, I've tried pitching the ideas of a show called crossed wires where you know you have a comic talking about i say this and my partner hears that right she says this to me and i hear something completely different or i meet a stranger on the street and he says this to me and i'm like I'm lost or I'm in a store and the clerk, right? This idea that as humans, we want to be heard and to hear and built into how we interact with each other are levels of misunderstanding, right? And misunderstandings are, you know, the basis for a lot of humor. Um, so I've tried to figure out or find the the way into the show or the, the, the title or the, or the key where I can say to CBC, hey, what about a show about this idea of communication and miscommunication? And I've never quite, uh, I've never quite uh, hit that one out of the park yet. Well, I say um, you should not just have more disability theme shows on the, uh, one of the comedy We should shows. definitely do that. It's, <laughs> yeah, yeah it's you a, had one in 2018. It's, I, 
And that was, yeah, that was, that was not a TV show though, right? That was a, no. that was a live one. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's a tricky bit of business because we are, we are very definitely aware as a festival that, you know, a big part of our mandate is giving voices to people who traditionally have been denied voices and to give platforms for people who have not always been given a platform. And then the counterbalance to that is how do we do that in a way that isn't uh, seen as uh, uh, ghettoizing, right? Because there's only so many years in a row you can say, hey, we're going to have an LGBTQ, LGBTQ show or a BIPOC show or a disability show before it becomes just sort of a cookie-cum cookie cutter kind of thing. So, you know, what we want to move towards, obviously, I think, I think obviously, and I don't have all the answers for everything, but I love the idea of incorporating comics who, you know, have disabilities into shows where it's not all about, tell us about your disability, right? There's part of me and I'm sure there's part of you and you correct me if I'm wrong because I'm a straight white guy who is, you know, able-bodied or non-disabled or whatever the term is, it's not going to get me uh, canceled. <laughs> I, 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 we just, I just call you guys muggles. Muggles. I'm a muggle. I'm a muggle who's trying to keep his antennas in the air and uh, move in the direction the world's moving without uh, crossing my arms going, well, that doesn't make any sense to me. When I was a kid, we didn't worry about that. Um, I'm trying to keep the world moving forward as I move forward and to go where the train is headed. But I think where the train is headed is I would love to hire Courtney Gilmore, for example, to do a set. And she's fully equipped to do this, by the way, it's up to us. It's up to us. You know, we had Courtney Gilmore out to do a show and uh, to do a TV set. And very predictably, the set is about so you may have noticed that I am missing both my arms. I was born this way. (laughs) And let me do a bunch of jokes about how I'm missing both my arms. And what I've said to Courtney and what we haven't managed to do is the next time you come here, I would love to have you do a set about something else that's not. Let me tell you about what it's like to be a person without two arms, because it's not fair if the only thing that a general audience is interested in hearing is tell me all about how you're different from me. Make me understand you because I'm different than you. So explain your difference to me. That's that seems so unfair, doesn't it? Am I wrong mm-hmm. about that? Me and Karen uh, did the disability show with her and Tazzy. Uh, Tazzy's fantastic. Uh, but I was going to say, uh, so it seems like uh, something that Courtney does really well is that she's built up a general population, uh, popular audience that will come support her wherever. And so you have to take advantage of the disability shows or the special opportunities uh, in order to build up that general population uh, audience so that when the Courtney does something like relationship uh, jokes show, she has enough fame that uh, you can book her for that because you know that she's bringing a big enough uh, audience to watch her perform. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I agree with what you're saying. And I'll I'll add that we're not, we don't have an eye on how much of a general audience is Courtney bringing to us when she comes. You know, the only thing that we have our eye on is, uh, you know, who are the comedians 
who bring a different perspective on whatever our theme is, right? So if we've got a, a, a theme show that's, you know, we did a, sh a, a TV show a few years ago that was themed around nerd culture, right? So the only thing that mattered to us is which spoke of the wheel of nerd culture are you going to tell us about, right? I'm a music nerd or I'm a comic book nerd or I'm a, you know, socially... <laughs> or yeah, or I'm a socially awkward nerd, or I'm a sexually awkward nerd, right? What is your spoke that you're self-identifying as? And then at that point, it becomes who can bring us the best, sharpest, funniest set on that theme. So if somebody comes to us with a brilliant 10-minute set about comic books, and somebody else comes to us with an almost as good, equally brilliant set about comic books, we can't put you guys on the same show. So sorry, number two comic book set guy, you're funnier maybe than the guy who brought the Dungeons and Dragons set or the music set or the video game set or whatever else, uh, you know, could fit into that. But that doesn't mean we can put you on the TV show, right? Because we need to have everybody bringing sort of a different uh, flavor to that theme. Does that make any sense? Makes perfect sense. Yeah. So I have to kill off all the other FB comics so I can be the one Mm-hmm. Adam, Adam, you're not winning that. That's really what I'm trying to <laughs> communicate to you guys is you're all competing for one spot. That's what I'm telling. No, that's not and what I'm saying. Some, some no, more but... Billados in Northwest Territories going, yeah, you guys are dead. Uh. <laughs> I just wanted to say it's it's getting late. Easter, or, I'm sorry, Central Standard Time. And I just want to say, Dean, thank you so much for coming out and doing this interview with us. I really appreciate it. Pause I... Before we go. Sure. Yeah. You want me? Sorry, I'm going to give you a plug. No, oh, no, 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 no. Is there anything I want to plug? Yeah. Um, I guess the only thing I'd plug, and if this is going to appear in July, I don't. We may have missed the bulk of it, but something Winnipeg Comedy Festival is doing right now, while we uh, wait and cross our fingers for the pandemic to pass, is we're doing. It's our 20th year, so in honor of our 20th year, we are doing 20 shows for 20 not-for-profits uh, in the Winnipeg area that Winnipeg performers have indicated they are uh, passionate about um, over the next 20-ish weeks. So we've already done a couple shows for uh, people like uh, Nine Circles Health, uh, which is a wonderful clinic that uh, works with people uh, with HIV, I believe, and other uh, other uh, sexually transmitted diseases and meets them where they're at. And we did one just recently for Canadian Mental Health Association, Manitoba, and we have one coming up for Fort Gary Women's Resource Center. So we're doing these Zoom shows. What we've done is we've gifted these Zoom shows to the not-for-profit, uh, allowing them to sell tickets and keep 100% of the proceeds. So uh, if, if we're still doing these come July, if we haven't uh, finished all 20 of them, uh, keep an eye out for those and uh, buy a ticket or two and support a wonderful not-for-profit and support some Winnipeg artists. Uh, Adam, I haven't uh, reached out to you to do uh, a spot on uh, any of the first few, but I would love to have you perform on one. And uh, I saw you on the, uh, the fundraiser that you did and people loved you. I respect what you do, and you're a very funny performer, as are uh, the rest of the hosts here. Thank you very much. I really appreciate uh, that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Comics NOS podcast. You can follow along by going to Facebook and searching up Comics NOS, the world's most awkward boy band. You can follow the comedians by going onto social media and looking up Michael McCreary, funny, you don't look autistic, on Facebook. You can also follow along by going onto Twitter and looking up at Corinne Dobbs and at Pat Tiffin. 
or you can go to adamschwartzcomedy.com. Technical productions for this podcast were brought to you by Christian Kostinik of Thunder Lizard Collective. Thank you.